As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Restore, our eye for beauty. A culture project restore night talk by Daniel Hill. Now this talk focuses a lot on the visual aspects of beauty, and Daniel makes some references to particular pieces of art that he shows on the screen behind him. He explains most of them, but there's a very intricate piece right towards the end of the talk. It's called the Ghent Altarpiece. To get the most out of what Daniel's saying, I would recommend you take a look at the Ghent Altarpiece by the Van Eyck brothers. If you Google Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, Altarpiece, you should find it. And it's also under the post for this talk on the Cradio website. Cradio. Thanks. Thanks, Francis. I, I do apologise. I was meant to give this talk last time and I pulled out a week before um, because I had a course on. So sorry about that. Um, you'll find out whether it was worth having me back or not. Um, so today's talk is Our Eye for Beauty. Um, and... There's a number of ways to talk about beauty. Uh, there's anyone here studied philosophy? You've been to Notre Dame, most of you. You know, theology. Yeah, so I'm not a philosopher or a theologian, but um, those two ways of understanding beauty are fundamental. So I'll go through maybe a few concepts of, of that. Some of the kind of more modern notions of beauty or art and I'll particularly talk about art, but the main thing I'll do, I think, is just go through a piece, of, beautiful piece of art and dissect it uh, in a way. So, so I'll, that's the way I'll go, go through it. Um, but I suppose a big question we can ask is, what is beauty? Or why does beauty matter? Some of you would, would know that in a very formal sense, but I think all of us know it instinctively. But yet, there is so much in the art world or in our concept of what is, what is, is and isn't beautiful, which doesn't seem to, to seem to gel with that. Um, the, way we, the, the way our cities are built, the way churches are built, the way buildings are built, the way what is and isn't considered a worthwhile piece of art or a beautiful piece of art, or we don't even use the word beauty much anymore unless we're um, trying to sell something like um, Kim Kardashian. So, um, but the beauty is uh, considered one of the three transcendentals. Some of you would, would know a lot more about that than me. Uh, but the, the, the notion that the, some of the, attrib- the attributes of God are truth, beauty, and goodness or holiness. And um, so that's one of the reasons why beauty matters and why we have an eye for beauty. We have a, beauty matters because it's an attribute um, of God. It's transcendental. It transcends merely us. And if you believe in God, if you believe we have a divine origin, a divine purpose, a divine end, then you cannot avoid the question of what is beauty. It's like saying what is right and wrong, and uh, what is truth. That's one of the reasons. Um, and the, the other reason is, of course, I call it a practical reason, there's probably a more um, correct term, uh, which is we desire beauty just like we desire right and wrong, like we desire God, 
like we desire happiness. Uh, that without beauty in our day-to-day lives, we live in what Roger Scruton, who's a great philosopher, and I recommend you listen to him as opposed to me after this. He's got this great documentary series, uh, uh, it's called Why Beauty Matters, uh, and he says, without beauty, we live in a spiritual desert. Uh, and it's, it's very... It, and he talks about a spiritual desert desert in reference to beauty, and his particular emphasis is visual beauty, you know, architecture, art, etc. Um, so you know, that's, a fundam- that's the fundamental of why, why we talk about beauty at all. Um, we, we think... One, one of the, the things I'd like to draw your attention to is the Nicene Creed. And we say these words, which you guys would say if you go to church on Sunday, which I hope you do at least most of the time. Um, is I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven, of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, etc., etc., etc. Now, what's being discussed there is the creation of the world, and by the world, not just the physical things, but the physical things, and the entry into physical things by God himself. So the idea that physical things are not important uh, does not match up with what we believe. We believe that um, we were created and God saw that it was good. And Catholics sometimes, not just Catholics, Calvinists too quite, quite badly, can often forget that our original state is a state of goodness. Uh, we focus a lot on sins and all the things, which is fine. I'm not saying not do that, but but sin is only a, a uh, it's a corruption of something that is good, something that is beautiful, and so our existence is called towards beauty, and it's called toward, towards beauty in this earth, and kind of penult- uh, ultimately in in um, in the next life, but. We also refer here, here this, this, these notions of a maker of heaven and earth. Through him all things were made. He's a creator. And we call him the creator. And we often don't think, what does that mean? He creates things, like an artist creates things. Like a music, and by artist I don't just mean a musician, this, that and the other. Um, and that's our calling too, and particularly um, for all of us in many different ways. Now, the most fundamental way we create is having children. Um, one of the most beautiful things in, um, in human existence is creating children. But just as we're made in the image and likeness of God, so are we drawn towards creativity. Yeah, and just look around the room, you can't... Um, you can't, can't deny that. We're all wearing clothes. They're created by someone. They were designed by someone. Uh, clothing style has changed throughout the ages, but yet we still wear them. Um, thank goodness. Um, we're sitting at tables and chairs. We're eating nice food. Uh, we're all being created by our parents and by God in, a, in, a, in, in this mystical union with the divine. 
Um, so the artistic effort uh, is meant to be fundamentally a, a sub-creative act and even a co-creative act. So just as you know, I, I do a virtuous act, you know, Ron's been hit by a bus and I go out of my way to get Ron off the street. I'm doing a, that's meant to be a joke, everyone's meant to laugh at the fact that um, I'm doing a virtuous, I'm doing a virtuous act, but I'm not doing it by myself. I don't, I don't decide that Ron needs saving because in fact I could also decide that he doesn't. And there are whole societies that have come up with systems of treating people badly, everyone thinks it's good. But no, I go out of my way to help, help Ron. That is, that is also how we live, a, that's how we live a life of virtue and also a life of beauty, um, particularly maybe in, in created things. And if you think, for instance, um, of the book of Genesis, one of my favourite lines in the book of Genesis is the reference to Adam tending the Garden of Eden. But wasn't the Garden of Eden perfect? Yet he tended it. Yet he, in his own way, was called to name the animals, which is, you know, he was a scientist, a philosopher, but also uh, the, the, the whole concept of naming something is knowing it, of, of learning about it, of marvelling at it. But he tended this garden. He was a gardener, just like Christ later was a gardener, you know, when he rose from the dead and all these other things gone. But anyway, um, so that fundamental, that call for us to enter into something that's beautiful, that we fundamentally don't make ourselves, that we tend. And if you have that mindset, then you start thinking about, well, what am I going to create? What's it going to look like? What kind of city am I going to build? What kind of church am I going to build? We, we, we kind of take on a notion that is quite different to perhaps a lot of modern ideologies or philosophies when it comes to art and architecture. And so I might start talking about those um, a bit now. Um, I'm, what I'll do, there's probably about four or five ideas that I'll bring up. Uh, you might identify them uh, and, and I'll see if I can kind of talk them out a bit. So one is that um, uh, there is no such thing as, in kind of an artistic sense, everything's the same. It's just one thing is, you know, just someone else's taste and another thing is another person's taste. So that, for that I brought a little um, PowerPoint, a couple of examples. I won't do, I was going to play you a visual comparison between techno dancing and waltzing, but uh, you can get the idea I suppose. Um, maybe I have to turn this on, that might be a good idea Mary. There we go. So is that a very famous piece of art? Anyone know what this is? Uh, yes, it's a urinal. Uh, it's a signed urinal, yes. Is that the same as that? Is it of equal value? And I'll tell you what, most, most um, art historians or art theorists would say, yes. Is that, anyone know what that is? It's Westminster Abbey. Um, is that the same as that? 
They're both churches. Um, or is that? Anyone know what this is? Fisher Library, yeah. Or the, um, the, giant car, the giant car battery, I like to call it. Uh, and there's actually positive and negative terminals at the top, anyway. Is that the same as that, which is the original library? Still exists, and if you come to Catholic Society Ball in November, that's in there. Um, now, I'm showing you kind of what, I, what would be considered self-evident examples, but they're not self-evident because we don't really build these things anymore. We can, but we don't. We build those. In fact, that was built in order to hide that because in the 60s, this was, con this was considered where we wanted to go and the ugly, old-fashioned, sandstone great, um, great Hall of Quadrangle Sydney Uni was considered a bit embarrassing. So um, they did consider pulling it down at one stage. Um, and they built that in front of it. Uh, just like, the, anyone been to the Queen Victoria building at, in Sydney? So that was meant to be a car park, concrete car park. Uh, and it was considered by, you know, the um, top architects at the time as a hideous building from an outdated age and we need to move, you know, to the modern era. Thank goodness they couldn't find the money to knock it down. Um, so we'll go, that's what we'll get into at the end. So that, look, that, that's one of the, the ideas that, that there is no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy of what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. Um, is it all just subjective? Well, yes and no. That's the answer. Um, is a sunset beautiful if nobody, nobody sees it? The answer is yes. It is beautiful if nobody sees it. Was God beautiful before humans came to know him in the way we know him, which is not perfectly, but in the way we know him? Yes, he was. Um, but we all still connect with things in our own individual way, and that's part of the magnificence of God's abundance, is that you know, Ron, Francis can look at this, and I can look at this. We both see the same thing, but we still have... We only, only we can see with our own eyes. But the whole notion that art is purely in the eye of the beholder um, is essentially a postmodern attitude. It's like saying there is no truth. And that is a self-contradictory -con statement because to say there is no truth um, is to say that's the truth. And to say art is in the... It's not exactly the same, but to say art is, beauty is in the, in the eye of the beholder, um, is to deny the fact that somebody, somebody um, thinks that something uh, is, cl claims that something is more beautiful than something else. And that's to deny that, that the very statement, you know, in a way. And that's one of, one of, the, one of the, uh, the attitudes that you can come up with, but it's not the only one. Um, there's also the attitude you often get in architects a lot, which is it's all about function. But it's all about emphasising the concrete. Or it's all about the doorknob. And we don't want any decoration. So if you've ever any seen, seen something like a Baroque church, which is really busy and you've got a lot of decoration, or even these that have all these beautiful carvings, 
um, they would say, oh, this, you know, this is too busy, it's too, too much, and we need to simplify. But what, what it often is, is, is it's, called, it's iconoclasm, the idea that we don't want any imagery, we don't want anything um, deeper than, than the material. But, the, but I would, one of the great ways to point this out is that, uh, to, to defeat this idea, is that beauty is a function, is the highest function of anything. That building a house, the highest, the, 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 one of the highest functions of building a house is it for it to be beautiful, a lovely place to live in. Not um, to emphasise that you know, the walls are flat. Like that, that's, that's a fine thing. You need flat walls, you need it to work. But beauty is a function. And um, it actually it makes our day-to-day life transcendent. Listening to beautiful music in horrible traffic can make that horrible traffic trip better. Uh, and that's just a practical example, and we all do that sometimes. Um, the, the, other, the other thing, of course, is that I think Sydney Sandstone as a material is far better showcased by this than a block of sandstone. Um, most people would agree with me, but that's another kind of view against the whole notion that you can't have decoration. It doesn't mean you always have decoration, but you can't have decoration. Um, it's 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 got to be plain. It's got to be simple. Clean lines is always the thing. Oh, we've got to make this house look like it's melded into the the hill. Uh, there's a great example of that attempt down my way in Jeringong, where there's this house that looks like a James Bond villain lives there. Um, it doesn't meld into the hill at all, but they think it does because it's a different shape. But that gets to the other one of the other um, the other notions is that all art, if it's worth anything, has to be creative in the sense that it has to be new. It has to be a new idea. You can't just build a beautiful neo-Gothic church. It has to be, you know, shaped this way, or, you know, we have to uh, build a big squiggle over town hall, like the giant tapeworm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. That's the proposal for the crossing at, in the middle of the city of Sydney from Clovermore, um, because it's so different. But it's not different. It's simply a signed urinal over and over and over again. Because it, once again, that is one of those self-contradictory statement, statements. If everything has to be a new idea, nothing is a new idea. Because that isn't a new idea. That's an old idea. I don't know if you're following me. Um, so that's, and that's very common these days. Oh, he's so different. He's painted a black box instead of a red box. Is it really? You know, look, it might be pretty, it might be worth looking at, but is it beautiful? Is it of transcendent worth? Another ideology about art that is problematic is, that, is the Marxist view. And the Marxist view is still very prevalent today, um, is that the function of art is to further the revolution. But, uh, you know, this is a little bit edgy, uh, says I, um, Catholics can have a, a, a kind of Marxist view of art too, that art is to help me pray. The Catechism says that. But that, that is not true. It, it, it is an effect of art, but art 
is and good art, beauty, by what we just beautiful art is good in and of itself. That you don't the idea is that I'm going to create something to help X pray, and it's a functional kind of transaction. Um, but I create this art because it is a continuation of the incarnation and is an act of worship in and of itself. We sometimes can, as Catholics, think, oh, it helps me pray, that's why it's good. Or that's why I like a beautiful church because it helps me pray. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's very problematic because it's, it's entirely subjective, entirely subjective, and it doesn't create, create objective excellence as the fundamental aim. Um, and you get into a whole variety of arguments, which I'm probably sure we've been into, of what music you should play at church or things like that. Like that's, that, that gets down to a fundamental thing of sentimentality. Well, what makes me feel good is good because it helps me pray. Well, you know, it's not entirely the end. Um, but Marxists really took that on board. And you, you might, we don't have much of it left in Australia, but you, you might, might, some of you might have seen, you know, the big burly men, you know, the, all the workers, you know, chopping down trees or digging holes. It's meant to make you feel really proud. They, some of them are quite beautiful, but it was a corruption. Just like sin is a corruption of something good. It was a, as a, as a corrupt view. Art can have a fun, can have a, subsidiary kind of purpose or um, do something, but it's, it's fun. If, if you want it to be pure, you want it to, to reflect God, uh, you, it's made because it is good. You, know, you can go on and on about this concept. You know, God didn't need us. He doesn't need us. It's from our pure, pure he's a pure abundance that, that we exist and, and so forth. Um, interestingly, the capitalist view of art, which I alluded to, a capitalist view of the female body, which is Kim Kardashian, um, the notion that art serves as some kind of asset class or some kind of thing I get into, it's just a market. Um, and it, it leads towards beauty being used in a variety of different ways that are uh, a little bit uncouth, put it that way. Um, an example I have, I don't know if it drives you guys up the wall, but maybe I'm just a grumpy old man now, um, is that, is, have anyone seen the recent NRMA ad where it's, you know, all these people helping each other and, they're, you know, pushing a guy, the, the scene of helping the guy out of the train. It's all very lovely and then they're just trying to get money out of me. I thought, you know, leave me alone. Uh, that is an example of beauty being used to sell you stuff. Uh, and you get that in you know, um, extreme versions of modelling. Um, you get that uh, even in McDonald's. Now, McDonald's isn't as obvious, but McDonald's, there's philosophers who talk about this explicitly, McDonald's apes religion. It has big, beautiful things. It's got an identifiable symbol. It's in every town. I think even the, the early founders of McDonald's actually thought you know, it should be there, the church, the courthouse, and the McDonald's is kind of what you want. Um, I think that is actually what they thought. Um, and you go in and you kind of have this kind of ritual, this pseudo-ritual act of getting your, uh, your cheeseburger. and you know, it, It's not the same, but it mimics that. So that's kind of art as a corruption. But even the Palace of Versailles is part of that game 
where the king, instead of actually trying to fix the streets of Paris, thought they were too smelly, left, and what happened? The destruction of the first ever um, Catholic kingdom in the history of the world. Um, it's, but it do, it's still beautiful. Anyone been to Versailles? Beautiful place. Magnificent place. And in and of itself, it's beautiful. Uh, and that's another point. Um, but it, it, was, it was a kind of a corrupt use of, the word, of, 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 um, of art. Okay, now where am I? Um, the, the ironic thing about beauty is also where we, very interesting, and we get to the notion of beauty and suffering. Um, and look, that's beyond, you know, my, my expertise. But you talk about the grotesque. Uh, and like, for instance, an example of beautiful things that are grotesque are gargoyles. You can imagine a Gothic cathedral without gargoyles. No. They're, they're ugly. They're intentionally ugly. And they have a whole variety of things. They're, they're, they're you know, the notion of a of spirits, incarnating a, 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 the notion of a spirit um, fleeing a sacred place. They're also meant to be humorous, you know, kind of laughing at sin, all those kind of things, but they're, they're ugly. But what's one of the ugliest things you ever see? It's crucifixion. So it, it, it's very hard to pin down this beauty thing. The more I talk about it, the more you realise, well, can we pin it down? And it's often referred to as, of the three transcendentals, it's the Holy Spirit one. What is the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't, you know, it's, it's the most mysterious of them all, but yet there it is. Um, I think it was von Balthasar who called it the disinterested one. You know, that there's, you know, he kind of floats around and he's, you know, um, hard, to, hard to make them sit down and tell you who they are, but everybody loves them. And that's kind of a notion of what, what beauty is. And beauty and suffering is very interesting uh, and it's, it brings in the subjective to beauty. But what's very important is uh, when we go into this beauty and suffering and things like that is you can't have beauty in suffering without beauty. If there is no good, then suffering is worthless. So it is, I say it's, it's subjective because it is by its nature referential. Just like... Um, the, the crucifixion was beautiful, but um, it was only beautiful insofar as it was part and part of our redemption. Someone, you know, just just ugly death on a cross is not not a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a contending in the modern world or the the created world with the notion of virtue and vice, and that beautiful. You know, that beautiful um, quest for truth. Okay, any, um, any thoughts on that before I go into... Okay, no worries. Well, what I wanted to do now is um, go through an actual artwork. Because I'm an art historian, I'm not an artist. Um, as you'll find, most people have strong opinions on things, don't really know how to do them themselves. Um, they just like to talk about them. Um, and I'm a medieval art historian, so I have a particular interest in, in sacred art. And 
One of the most beautiful pieces of art I think ever made is known as the, the Ghent altarpiece. Um, and it's from Ghent, right? uh, which is in the Netherlands. Um, the type of art, it's late Gothic, so it's still in the, the period of, of um, uh, Gothic architecture, but it's highly naturalistic, it's known as Flemish art, and um, it's, it still uses the classical forms. You see the, the drapery down here of, of um, the two apostles, for instance, or the magnificent drapery on um, Gabriel and uh, Mary. And it opens up. So an altarpiece is a piece of art that sits on an altar, and they are everywhere until tabernacles were invented uh, in the uh, 16th century. And when you attended Mass, you would see the priest facing this image, and you know, he'd, he'd perform the sacrifices, elevate the host. Very important to get the context of what happened, happens with these things. So here you have a variety of prophets um, predicting what's happening here, which is the Annunciation. But what, happens, what happened at the Annunciation? The Incarnation. What happens at Mass? The sacrifice, the presence, the real presence of Christ comes uh, on the altar. So when a, the priest would say Mass, the host would be there. So you have very, very powerful use of beauty to underscore and art to underscore um, what's happening on the altar. Now, on high feast days, they'd open it up. Here's a, here's a close, uh, close up. And you get this. Now, this is the, uh, the, the piece de, de resistance. And it's known as the um, altar, ple, altar piece of the, of the lamb. And you see down there, I'll do a, a close-up for you, uh, seen from the apocalypse. And there's the lamb on the altar. And there are two registers, the upper register and the lower register. There are actually three registers. What's the third register? I alluded to it before. It's the sacrifice of the mass. So you cannot see this alone. At the upper register, you've got these, these three figures. Uh, Mary on Christ's right, the, the side of prominence, contemplating the scriptures, pondering things in her heart. And she's also sitting like most women when this was created would have sat in church. They would have sat and they would have contemplated the, played the, the, the scriptures, particularly books of ours, the Psalms and things like that, um, like a true noble woman. And they're dressed very beautifully. On the, on the right is, anyone know who's on the right? Yeah, John the Baptist. And he's pointing. And man, he, you know, behold the Lamb of God. That was very, very common. But who's in the middle? We don't know exactly who that is. It's the Trinity personified as a person. And you can, most likely it's the Trinity. Some people argue, no, it's Jesus Christ. It's most likely the Trinity. Um, you see by the triple crown a reference to the Trinity, also to the papal office, um, the notion of authority on earth, God's authority on earth. I'll go back here because there's a few other things to, to look at as well. Up the very top here, that's the sacrifice of Cain and Abel. 
On the very, very far side is the sacrifice of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Um, you have Adam and Eve, and Eve is holding, holding a little lemon, a citrus fruit. And that is a, of course, it's got a, it's got a double reference. It's a reference to Eve eating the apple, which, or whatever, the fruit, which uh, Mary's yes rescinded and crowned her uh, uh, Eve's no. But it's also a Eucharistic reference because there's no question that that you know, little circle it has a visual kind of consonance with the host being elevated. The whole notion that um, the, the host is what is meant to be consumed by, by us. You also see Eve um, has a very pronounced hips. The emphasis is on her womb. Once again, creating a juxtaposition between the womb of both Mary and also the womb of the altar where the incarnation happens over and over. Um, the angels are great, and I encourage you, I don't think I've got as close up of the angels, no. The angels are great um, because they're dressed investments. Catholics would say that very quickly. They're dressed investments. Um, and each one has a particular mouth movement and the way their tongue is, which corresponds to the way singers were trained to sing polyphony at that time. And so art historians know what they're singing. They know who's the alto, who's the soprano, who's the tenor. And, um, but the significance of them being dressed investments, because there's, there's always a whole pile of people dressed investments in front of this thing. And it underscores the notion that what is happening on this altar is actually happening in heaven. That the, the, the chant being sung by you know, the monks or the people, whatever, in front of this um, are not coming out of their own mouths. They're actually giving voice to the angels, which is alluded to, you, if you listen before, the, whole, the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 in the Mass. Um, we, we, we say that. So it's once again underscoring the connection between the Mass and the physical world uh, and with heaven. To further that idea, I'll just zoom in a little bit to the sacrifice of the lamb. And straight away you can see that this artwork keeps going. That the crystal fountain, the fountain of life flows onto the altar, down into the church. The, the, the concept of, of this painting isn't that it's a pretty picture that helps me pray. It is, in fact, a making present that which is unseen. And that's very funda fundamental. The, see the way the angels are incensing the, the lamb on the altar? The altar would have looked almost exactly the same, just further down. Um, people kneeling there would have seen, seen altar servers doing that. And they would have straight away had a notion of what's going on. But the... The subject matter, I'll, I probably might end around here, the subject matter is interesting um, because this isn't uh, the Last Supper, is it? You know, that's the Eucharist. Or, um, it's, or it's, it's not you know, the wedding feast at Cana, which is another Eucharistic reference. This is the end of the world. 
this is the scenes from the apocalypse. Because fundamentally, all virtuous acts by us, all beautiful art and architecture, are, is participating in an eternal act, an eternal kind of marital act between heaven and earth. And um, just as we kind of aspire to be in union with, with God, so these acts are in union with him. And the Mass, of course, is considered uh, this kind of place where the space-time continuum opens up. And what a priest, what a mere man does uh, somehow is God acting in bread and wine. Um, it's, it's very, very mystical. Um, and the, the notion that all moments are eternal. So this moment now, like, it'll never happen again. Now, once it's happened for eternity, this is a historical act. You know, you guys sitting there listening to me, Babylon. You know, great. Um, all these moments will will exist forever. This very kind of rather mystical. And so um, when you consider the end of the world, the eschatological moment, uh, we all participate in it day by day. Um, and that's, that kind of leads me back to the, the beginning. Well, what, you know, what is beauty? Our eye for beauty. Our eye for beauty is our eye for God. Our eye for beauty, our desire for beauty is a desire to exist in this transcendent level. And if we ignore that, we go in an opposite direction. Um, and it is, it is not good for us. It is not worthy of our time to build things that are not, or make things or admire things that are not aligned with the eschatological moment, which is, which is our union in heaven. So I might leave it there. That was Daniel Hill with Restore Our Eye for Beauty. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.